Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, December 26, 2010. My name is Doug Taylor. We are going to start tonight with Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 30. And the verse reads, One who shuts his eyes to think of duplicity, he signals with his lips, bringing evil to pass. One who shuts his eyes to think of duplicity, he signals with his lips, bringing evil to pass. So as we have done on many verses before, I will start out by asking you, what are the questions that we should be asking around that verse? What isn't clear? What needs definition? What doesn't make sense? Uh, all those kinds of questions that we'd like to get on the table so that we kind of know where to go and it gives us some idea of the uh, of the layout of what we're trying to figure out. Jim, thank you. Why does he shut his eyes? What's, what's up with that? Uh, and what is duplicity? Linda, thank you. And yes, why the, the eyes shutting is a very unusual thing, it seems, for King Solomon to say. Uh, and Jim, you've asked, how does that help him think duplicitous thoughts? Good. Uh, and he signals with his lips bringing evil to pass so Jimmy Vask how does pursing his lips bring evil to pass or or I'm guessing your translation says pursing uh, the one I uh, was using said signals uh, but uh, similar kind of thing what's going on how does doing something with his lips uh, bring evil to pass we also might want to define what's duplicity here um, and what's the evil that he's bringing to pass. And then overall, you know, what's the verse teaching us anyway? So, and Laurie and Terry, you've suggested maybe he closes his eyes to not see the wrongdoing. Okay could be, although the first part does say he shuts his eyes to think of duplicity. Um, so we might want to see if we can find a relationship between shutting his eyes and the thinking about duplicity part. Uh, Terry, you've asked what's the relationship between the two parts. Good question. Uh, they don't, it certainly doesn't seem to be an opposites kind of thing. So What's King Solomon doing here? So let's start with duplicity. Duplicity is essentially where you're intentionally telling someone something, but you do something else. In other words, you're intentionally being deceitful to another person. You pretend to be one way, but you act a different way. Now, the verse says that someone thinks of duplicity. So why would someone think of duplicity? And I'll suggest it's because he's planning something. He shuts his eyes in order to think about what to say to a person in order to fool them. And his motive must be that he wants something from them that he can't get by being truthful. Because otherwise, why dupli be duplicitous? So he's, he's scheming. He's planning some way to use the other person. And he's shutting his eyes so he can really focus on designing his evil plan. Sometimes when we're, we're trying to develop an idea or... Uh, remember something or whatever, we will shut our eyes and, and even sometimes scrunch up our face because we're, we're trying to focus on what was it that, you know, I said to Harry at the meeting three weeks ago, and we shut our eyes uh, perhaps to avoid any visual distractions uh, because we can, we can concentrate more just on that thought. So the verse seems to be suggesting that we're dealing with someone who is truly intent on his evil plan here. This is not a casual thing. Okay, we've got someone with serious intent. Um, 
And in fact, the Rabbeinu Yonah indicates that this verse is emphasizing the extent of the evil of this person. It's not just that he does crime, but he shuts his eyes to concentrate on how he can do it. And then once he develops his plan, he verbalizes it. <clears throat> so he uses his lips to uh, verbalize that plan in one form or another, bringing evil to pass. We've talked, uh, I think, before in, in previous uh, verses about how um, when you think about something that's one thing, when you start talking about it, it clarifies it and it makes it more uh, real. Now, the Ralbag takes a different approach, which I find to be complementary to the Rabbeinu Yonah's approach. Ralbag points out that it is speech that makes the actual crime possible. If all the evil person had done was to think about his evil plan, then the crime wouldn't have actually occurred. But in our verse, the evil person takes it further and uses the beautiful gift of speech to make that happen. So thoughts are one thing, but the next step is actually verbalizing them. And that starts to bring the thought into actual manifestation. So the verse tells us that he signals with his lips bringing evil to pass. In other words, once he verbalizes it, that brings the evil to actually occur. So we have at least two lessons here. One is that we need to recognize that there are evil people in the world. And there are some who will concentrate mightily on their designing their evil plans. Their intent is evil. It's not an accident. It's a carefully designed crime. And it would be naive of us to walk through life thinking that, you know, everyone is wonderful. Because there are people out there who are not. Um, and... So we need to be aware of that and to take that into account uh, in our dealings and our encounters with other people. The second idea is that speech is a way that thoughts are brought into manifestation. We need to control our thoughts as best as we can. And in addition, we need to carefully control our speech lest the things that we think actually come about. You know, our thoughts whirl around in our head and whatever, and yeah, okay, but once we start talking about that idea, that is bringing it closer to actually occurring. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, so let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 16, and verse 31. And this verse reads, Old age is a crown of glory. It will be found in the way of righteousness. Old age is a crown of glory. It will be found in the way of righteousness. So, what kinds of questions can we ask around that verse? Ah, Jim, thank you. <laughs> Are all old people righteous? Yes. Very good point. Lori and Terry, good. What's a crown of splendor or crown of glory? What is that? Um, and what does it mean that it'll be found in the way of righteousness? And I, I could ask the question, what is found in the way of righteousness? Is it old age, or is it a crown of glory? Ah, Jim, yes. <laughs> Maybe we should start taking a look at bald people. Uh, it's true. Ah, Ross, good point. If one is righteous, he is rewarded with old age. Okay? And there can be some very practical reasons why that happens. Uh, so if, if I don't cover that, by the time we get done with this verse, then remind me 
uh, and we'll, we'll come back and address that. Very good point. So I'm going to suggest that a crown of glory, first of all, a crown is something you wear, okay? And interestingly, in a way, it's not for you because you can't see it. Um, it's like wearing a hat. You know, there might be a practical reason for keeping your head warm, but if it's a decorative hat, other people see it, you don't. So, and a crown signifies some kind of achievement, some kind of status. You know, kings wear crowns, queens wear crowns. So a crown of glory would seem to be something that you wear on your head that somehow it glorifies the person. Okay. And so right off the bat, then I'll suggest that we see that the second half of the verse is a qualifier of the first half. Why? Because if we stop at the first half, the verse doesn't make sense. As Jim pointed out, we see people for whom old age is not a crown of glory. I mean, it seems like a curse to them. You know, some older people, they get angry, they get irritable, they continue to do bad things. So we can't say that the first half is universal, but that the second half of the verse qualifies it. In other words, how you get old age as a crown of glory is found in the way of righteousness. And, and by the way, I realize that some translations translate it as the crown of glory is old age instead of old age is a crown of glory. And I think the interpretation of the verse comes out the same no matter which approach you take. Um, you still have the second half as a qualifier of the first half. So the second half seems to be saying that something must be found in the way of righteousness. Uh, I mean, it's saying it will be found. So what's the it? It can't be old age because old age happens to anyone who lives that long, regardless of their level of righteousness. So the verse must be saying that the crown of glory that can happen in old age is found in the way of righteousness. <clears throat> so how does that work? When a person lives a righteous life, I will suggest people notice. A person's good deeds can be seen, and people can tell a difference between a righteous person and a wicked person if they've been around long enough. You know, you, you get known by who you are and what you are and the company you keep and the deeds you perform and whether you keep your word and whether you're honest and whether you do charitable things for people and, you know, whether you think through things wisely or do, you know, uh, stupid things. You, people get to know. So uh, people can figure out who's the righteous person and, and who's the wicked person. Now, as we mentioned before, a crown of glory is something that's worn by the person but viewable by other people. So it signals something to other people. And in this case, the righteous life of the person as they get old is a crown in the eyes of others. They see the righteousness of the person and that righteousness is admired and respected. People respect a person of wisdom and of knowledge um, and a person who gives selflessly and, uh, you know, who they've learned over the years is uh, trying to do what they can for the community and uh, so on and so forth. So people know, yeah, Laurie and Terry, as you pointed out, good health, active old age, uh, and wisdom together. Now, the Ralbag, interestingly, points out three advantages that an elderly person has and uh, that, are, that can be helpful in influencing other people in the path of righteousness. First thing is, they have a lot of experience to draw on. I mean, there is nothing like talking to an experienced person in almost any field of life. Um, when I, years ago, um, I used to fly, and when I got my pilot's license, my instructor was a guy who had flown in World War II. 
Uh, he'd probably flown for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. You can learn a lot about flying from somebody who has flown for 30 or 40 years, uh, more so than you can from someone who's had less experience. So an older person has a lot of experience to draw on, and that can help guide uh, younger people uh, in, in a proper path. The second thing that Ral Bagh points out is that the righteous person has spent a lot of time pursuing wisdom. And so he has a lot to offer in terms of helping other people and, and guiding them. Uh, he's got a bunch of wisdom that he's picked up from all his studies and all his learning that he can turn around and share with others. And because of their age, the natural passions and the drives for pleasure that a young person has have abated somewhat in an older person. Those passions and drives aren't as strong or as overwhelming as they can be in a younger person. And that puts the older person in a better position to give objective advice and perspective to the younger person. So uh, there are a number of advantages uh, to, to living a righteous life in terms of being able to turn around and help your community and help the people in it uh, as you get older. So the verse is teaching us one of the long-term benefits of a life of righteousness. And when you get to old age, you still possess the benefits of righteousness. You know, all the learning and all the character development uh, and all those things that, uh, that you've uh, developed in yourself and in your, your soul over the course of a life of righteousness, that's stuff that nobody else can take away from you. Somebody can take your bank account and your car and your home and, and those kinds of stuff right down to the shirt off your back, but they can't take away your integrity. Uh, that pretty much only we can do to ourselves. And so when a person gets to old age, they still possess the benefits of righteousness and they carry into those years and make those elder years or can make those elder years very rich. By contrast, somebody who focuses on the material world and the physical desires, and that's their whole focus in life, they will discover there is no getting around the aging process. I can tell you that from personal experience. It's going to come whether you like it or not. Uh, and so as those people age, there's no amount of money or material pleasure that can stop uh, the onset of old age. And so they're going to find themselves with older years that are empty uh, because the things that they've spent their entire life on can't keep going. Uh, and by, while the, the person who's focused on, uh, on righteousness uh, and delving into the world of ideas and growth, they've still got something that's timeless and that they can continue to pursue even if their body is slowing down, even if they get to a place where they can't you know, move around as easily or go out and do some of the uh, hugely physical things that they used to do when they were younger. Okay, now, one more point. Let me go back to Ross's uh, point that if one is righteous, he is rewarded with old age. So can we look at that and think about why? Um, I mean, not every righteous person lives to old age and not every wicked person, um, you know, dies young. But generally speaking, uh, we would say that a righteous person uh, would very likely be rewarded with old age. Why would that be? I mean, we could just say, well, you know, God does that for people. But I want to suggest, uh, I guess, what I understand to be a, a Michelet approach to that, a Proverbs approach. And that is, look at the life of the righteous person. What are they focused on? They're focused on seeing reality and uh, getting rid of their emotional conflicts, dealing with their emotions, dealing with consequences 
looking at long-term consequences and making good decisions about life and uh, growing their, their own personalities and their knowledge and their wisdom. Okay, What's a wicked person focused on? A wicked person, by contrast, is focused on physical desires, my emotional desires, wealth, property, power, fame, you know, all the sort of standard kinds of things. And so what does each one of them get? Well, the, the wicked person is along the way going to be operating outside of reality, so he's going to make enemies. And those enemies may come along and decide to do him harm in one way or the other that could just be painful or it could be fatal uh, because he's double-crossed people, he's uh, acted unjustly toward them or whatever it might be. So he has a chance of dying early just from his own actions. He also, even if he lives long, he's constantly in conflict because he's not dealing with reality, he's dealing with his emotional desires and he's never going to fulfill those and he's never going to fulfill all his physical desires. Um, you know, how many people do you know who make money and possessions their goal get to a particular point where they say, okay, you know what? I figured out I've got enough. I don't need any more. This is what I need to live on for the rest of my life. I'm going to stop. Oh, they keep going and going and going, trying to get more and get more and get more. So even the quality of the life that they have is going to be poor because they're constantly in conflict and constantly searching after something that they're not going to find. Now let's contrast that with a righteous person. What about their life? Well, they're undoing conflicts, their own emotional conflicts, and they're living in accordance with reality. So they are taking out some of the stress in their lives by reducing their conflicts and, uh, and dealing with them in an appropriate way. So their stress level will be lower, which, as we know, stress has an effect on your health and on your long-term life. They're also going to make friends and, and companions and be known as you know, wise people in their communities. So they're not going to make enemies. So they're not going to have people out there trying to bump them off because you know, they treated them unjustly. So their opportunity to live to elderly years is greater than the wicked person. And the quality of the life they will live over those years is greater than the wicked person. So Ross, again, to your point, if one is righteous, he is rewarded with old age. And I would suggest, yes, that is the natural consequence that comes from living a righteous life and living in accordance with reality. Um, and yes, a right, Ross, right, a righteous person will rejoice in his old age. He'll, he'll relish the, uh, the, the knowledge and the ideas that he's been able to involve himself rather than be uh, bitter. And Laurie and Terry, yes, measure for measure in the sense of, you know, we, we kind of reap what we sow, uh, even though sometimes it doesn't look directly like that. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're uh, involved in the life of righteousness, you get the rewards of righteousness. And if you're involved in the life of wickedness, you get the rewards of wickedness. And it, it's, a, it's a consequence thing. It's the outcome. Uh, just like, you know, if I eat junk food for 20 years, I get a certain health outcome from that. If I eat healthy food for 20 years, I get a different health outcome from that. It's not that God came along and whacked me. It's that I'm getting the natural outcome of the behavior that I chose. Uh, so uh, in that sense, yes, if a person is, is righteous, then... Uh, uh, we would expect that he would be rewarded with old age as a consequence of his behavior. Okay, any questions on that verse or those ideas? Okay, thank you. In that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than a strong man and one who rules over his spirit than one who conquers a city. There's a lot there. 
He who is slow to anger is better than a strong man, and one who rules over his spirit than one who conquers a city. Jim, good question. Better in what way? The first half, actually both halves are talking about better. Uh, the, the implied comparison in the second half is one who rules over his spirit is better than one who conquers the city. So, uh, yeah, how are they better? Good question. Any others? So I would ask the question in addition, why is a person who is slow to anger better than a strong man? I mean, maybe being better or stronger is a better deal. Um, and Jim, yes, very good question. Is it significant that in part two we have conquer rather than rule uh, over a city? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Uh, and we'll, we will, uh, I think, get to an answer on that. Uh, very interesting that there's a slight difference in those. Um, Laurie and Terry, you've said he, he won't have to defend himself and maybe uh, face becoming dead. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Uh, I assume you're applying that in both cases. Um, and Ross, you've said one does not regret the results of his angry words or deeds. Ah, very good. Yeah, you don't have to go clean up messes. Uh, excellent. Uh, and Linda, you've asks, so we need to define what does slow to anger mean and how is that stronger? How is that better than a strong person? Um, yes. Good question. And, and I'm also going to throw in the why question on the second half. Why is one who rules over his spirit better than one who conquers a city? So let's start with anger. Let me ask you a question. What does anger do to you? I mean, when you when you get angry, what what is the what's happening to you? What is the result that you get? Okay, Lori and Terry, thanks. Without thought. Yeah, I'll act without thought. Okay, good. My mind is not engaged. Jim, good. Physically it increases my pulse. There's a whole physiological set of things that happen uh, when I get angry. Anger, interestingly, puts you, uh, squarely puts your emotions in control of your thoughts and your speech and your actions. Um, to Lori and Terry's point, you're without thought. Uh, and yes, Jim, your mind is not focused on solving the problem. You have disengaged your intellectual mind and your emotions have taken over. And once that happens, that means you aren't seeing clearly. You aren't seeing reality clearly. And so you're virtually certain to make mistakes if you let your anger run you. Now, What's the outcome if that happens? Well, it's the natural outcome you can expect. Uh, Lori and Terry, yeah, it can be like, like you're an animal. Uh, I just want to tear that guy to pieces. Uh, you, you end up ruining relationships. Uh, you ruin friendships. You ruin business deals. Um, a person can even go so far as to make big time mistakes uh, that can be fatal. Uh, consider, for example, the case of road rage, where an angry driver gets out of his car and goes over and kills the other driver. I mean, can you imagine this guy sitting in prison then for 20 plus years? And I heard about a guy that had done this years ago, and I think he got either 23 or 27 years in prison for it. So he's sitting there in prison for 20 plus years. Do you think every day he's thinking, yeah, that was sure the right thing to do because that guy cut me off. It was absolutely worth spending 27 years of my life in prison to get that guy for that. I doubt it. And Ross, you've suggested one can be patient with the angry person and he may repent. 
uh, or else engage in an argument or a fight. Yes. Uh, and in fact, if you can avoid dealing with an angry person while they're angry, uh, it's really the best way to handle that because the angry person is out of their uh, intellectual zone and into their emotional zone and it's going to be very hard um, to, to reason with them. So that's what happens when you're angry. Okay, now, what can a strong man do? Well, he can lift physical objects. Uh, he can move physical objects. He has strength in the physical world. So he could presumably beat people up if they're smaller or less strong than he is. So he has an advantage in life in certain physical situations, okay? Now, um, Laurie and Terry, you've, you've mentioned arrogance, and I'm assuming that you're referring here to the, uh, this part and not the anger part uh, with regard to the strong man, but I'd suggest that all the verse is telling us, yeah, all the verse is telling us is that he's strong. It doesn't tell us anything about his character. He might be a good guy. Uh, but he's just strong. He's got a particular level of strength. So he has an advantage in certain physical situations. In any kind of a situation that requires thought or analysis, he has no advantage. He does have an advantage in certain physical situations. So now the verse is telling us that the guy who can control, who is slow, to go into the anger state is better than the guy who has this physical advantage. Why is that? I'll suggest because a person who is slow to anger or who manages to control his angry emotion enough so that he doesn't go into anger, he can operate from his intellectual mind. So he's able to see the reality in virtually any situation and make the best decisions to deal with it. So while the strong man has an advantage in certain physical situations where he can protect himself or you know, do certain physical movements, the man who can control his anger and thus retain his rational mind has an advantage and can protect himself in virtually any situation because he can think through see clearly what's happening, and then take action to get the desired outcome or to protect himself or whatever happens to be necessary. So he has an advantage in all situations. The strong man only has an advantage in physical situations. Plus, the one who is slow to anger avoids negative consequences that are associated with anger, like damage to his body, uh, and, and damage to his energy that getting angry can bring. Anger is a real great way to burn up your energy uh, if you want to kind of wipe yourself out. Um, now, Laurie and Terry, you've suggested when an arrogant strong man is doing something, he is not always thinking about his back and so forth. That's true, uh, but again, I'd suggest in this verse... They're not, King Solomon is not necessarily implying to us that the strong man is arrogant. I would agree with your statement. Uh, when, when an arrogant, strong person is doing something, there's a lot, the arrogance itself is an emotion. And because he's operating from that emotion, he's not seeing reality, and he may think he's invincible. So you're right, he's not watching his back. Uh, and he can be uh, uh, you know, overpowered or caught by surprise. Uh, or whatever. In this case, the verse I think is t is suggesting that the strong man has basically the same average temperament as everybody else. Uh, so he's just as likely to get angry as the next guy. Uh, and the verse seems to be comparing the advantage of staying in your intellectual mind and not losing it to your emotions with the advantage of being physically strong. Now, in the second half of the verse, the opening part, which is one who rules over his spirit, that can be translated as anger, like the first half, or it could be translated as other types of passions besides anger. 
And I'm going to go with the first approach. Uh, this is one of the approaches taken by the Rabbeinu Yonah. He contrasts the person in the first half who is able to restrain himself from reacting immediately and instead waits until his anger calms down. He's contrasting that person with the person in the second half who has completely silenced his anger and does not have an emotional desire to strike back at the other person. So you'll notice the use of the word rules in the second half. He rules over his anger. That is, he has it under complete control so that he's not even having an angry reaction. So why is he better than one who conquers a city? I will submit that it is far easier to deal with an external foe than an internal one. It's much easier, for example, to tell someone else that they should learn to control their anger than it is to control my own. It's much easier to tell someone else what they should do than to put that same advice into action for myself. Conquering a city requires a certain amount of strength and probably some strategy. But if the conqueror is still ruled by his emotions, he can be brought down because that's a weak point. He has a vulnerability, if you will, in his, in his armor. If you can get him angry, he'll make mistakes in his life, even though he may have been successful at conquering the city. By contrast, the one who rules over his own spirit a person who has so conquered his inclination toward anger that he doesn't even feel the emotion, that person is in a position to make wise decisions in every situation. He has conquered the most difficult foe of all, which is himself. And Jim, you asked the question earlier um, uh, about rules over his spirit than one who conquers a city. Yes, a person who conquers it, okay, they won the battle. But now, if you want to keep it, you've got to keep that city under control. You've got a whole bunch of people in that city. They may rise up against you. You know, the, that's a whole additional piece of work that has to be done. So the verse seems to be comparing the person who rules over his spirit, uh, which is a constant thing, than one who conquers a city which is a single event. Uh, it doesn't interestingly say one who rules over his spirit <clears throat> than one who rules a city. Um, but it makes that, uh, that juxtaposition. And Ruach Haim points out that this verse is written in the present tense to tell us that we have to fight our instincts as long as we live. You never get done with this. Uh, the instincts are always there, and so we always have to be constantly vigilant, uh, lest they, you know, sneak around and uh, try to uh, to get a hold of us. Uh, and Jim, you said uh, it, it does remind you of the the wise man who can pacify the king's wrath in 1614. Yes, uh, we did that one uh, not long ago. Um, so, yeah, if, if you're in the company of an angry person and you can pacify them, you can stay calm and bring a calmness to that situation, that is a huge strength. Uh, I think it was Rudyard Kipling has a poem called If. Um, and it goes through um, a bunch of comparisons of if you can do this while well, other people can do this, uh, or if you can do this and this and this. And I believe one of the last comparisons is if you can keep your head while everyone around you is losing theirs. Um, meaning you can, you can stay calm and be a thinker in a situation where everybody else has completely lost it. Uh, that, that's a very laudable thing. Okay, any questions on that verse or those concepts? 
Jim, the person who pointed out this was in the present is a source called the Ruach Chaim, R-U-A-C-H, uh, second is C-H-A-I-M. Um, that was a source that I saw in the Art Scroll, and it's not uh, one of the scholars that I am personally familiar with, uh, but I thought his idea was quite appropriate for, uh, for our discussion. Okay, in that case, I'd like to just veer off the verses for a moment uh, and discuss a general idea of Proverbs as I understand it. Um, Rabbi Chait, uh, I believe it was, who said, you know, when you run across an idea uh, that, that comes up, you should take advantage of, of the opportunity and pursue it. And something came up for me uh, this week that uh, I wanted to share with you uh, with regard to our study of Proverbs that had to, has to do with um, situations we face every day uh, and then some comments that uh, Rabbi Moskowitz made once about uh, kind of the overall framework of, of the Proverbs life. When we look at various verses in Proverbs, we, we see terms like good and evil. Um, wise and fool, righteous and wicked. Uh, they're comparisons, they're opposites. They're like ends, opposite ends of a spectrum. Uh, and those terms give us a framework for thinking about a particular aspect uh, of a person. However, in life, we run into many kinds of situations. And there is a huge temptation uh, to label these situations as good or bad, or right or wrong, or some other label that implies a complete judgment of the situation. Yet, we really don't know sometimes how various situations or people are going to turn out until our life or maybe their life uh, is completely over. Um, there's a story uh, told of a, a farmer who had a single horse and he used it to plow his field. And one day the horse ran away. And the townspeople came around and said, oh, that's really terrible. That's, that's a bad thing. What, what bad luck? And the farmer said, well, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. And the next day, the horse came trotting back into the barn, leading five wild mares. And the townspeople said, wow, what great good fortune you have. Man, five horses, that's tremendous. What good luck. And the farmer said, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. A couple days later, the farmer's young son was trying to break one of the mares, and it threw him, and he landed and broke his leg. And the townspeople came out and said, oh, that's really bad. That's terrible. Uh, you know, that's awful situation. And the farmer said, good, bad? It's kind of hard to say. And two weeks later, the army came through the village conscripting or drafting all the young men to go off to war. But they left the farmer's son because his leg was broken. So, good, bad, it's kind of hard to say. The Proverbs approach to life, as we've discussed, is about looking at consequences. And perhaps we could even use a different word than that since the word consequences has a bit of a negative connotation as opposed to a neutral connotation. Uh, we might even be better off by using the word outcomes. We look at outcomes and rather than labeling a situation or a person as good or bad, I simply observe outcomes. The Proverbs approach to life doesn't involve judging others or situations. I analyze situations I analyze outcomes and then I make the best choice that I can that will have the best long-term outcome. 
A person who cheats and steals for a living gets a certain outcome from that. A person who lives a righteous life gets a certain outcome from that. All I'm doing as the observer is I'm just observing and making notes and then making decisions in life based on the best outcomes that I can see. Now, I bring all this up because there is an insidious little game that can creep into our lives uh, if we're not careful. Uh, and I would title it the Make Others Wrong game. It's very easy to play. Uh, all we have to do is make a judgment about someone or some group or some situation that goes beyond just the facts of the situation. And presto, I've been pulled into the game. So, for example, if I'm a Democrat, I can say, oh, it's those Republicans that are wrecking the country. Or if I'm a Republican, I could say, it's those Democrats that are wrecking the country. And voila, I have now managed to make a sizable portion of the United States wrong. Or, if I think that Torah ideas are correct, it's one thing to say, these are the ideas that I hold to, and here is why I hold to them, and give my rational uh, support for that. But it's another thing to turn around and make people from other religious groups wrong. I mean, it's easy to do, because after all, how could they think what they think anyway? I mean, you know, they must be crazy. Of course, in doing that, I conveniently forget that once upon a time, I believed those things. And so my indictment of them really becomes an indictment of myself. The game of making others wrong isn't about giving up ideas that I think are correct. It's, it's not about saying, well, if Tom thinks that 2 plus 2 is 5, I guess it's okay if that works for him. I, I can certainly observe that Tom's math is incorrect. But I wouldn't call him an idiot. I wouldn't call him stupid or some other derogatory term. I would simply note that his math is incorrect. That's the fact. So why do we do this? Why do we sometimes like to make other people wrong? And I'll suggest that when we make other people wrong, we do so because we have an emotional investment in being right. And that's a signal for us that we have something to work on. If we know what we know, then we don't need anybody else to agree with it in order for us to feel okay. I know two plus two equals four. I do not need anybody else to give me confirmation of that. Uh, if I feel like I have to go put somebody else down around that, that's a sign that I have an emotional investment tucked in there somewhere. And that is, interestingly, a nice opportunity to take a look a little deeper at what's causing me to do that. So it's again every person has to look at their own life and and see and maybe for some people uh that game never creeps in uh but it's one that i know that i have to be careful of um because it it's one of those things that creeps in almost so you can't see it um Making others wrong includes making situations or groups wrong. I could say, well, the country's all falling apart. Or young people just aren't responsible anymore. Or that committee doesn't know what it's talking about. And all of these statements indict an entire group, even though I've never met them or never met them all, and I haven't talked to them all, and I certainly don't know what they're all thinking. So it's a very creepy little thing that comes in. It can be very, very subtle, and it can come in in ways that you don't immediately see. It's one of those things that we need to be continually on the lookout for. But if we take the opposite approach, we simply view outcomes. 
Okay, that, that's my approach to life, is I'm, I'm looking at outcomes. Then it takes away all the judgment and all the drama from a situation or a person or a group, and I can more easily just stay with the facts. I'll suggest that this approach also requires much less energy because a huge amount of personal energy can be spent on judging other people and making them wrong. It can, it can absolutely wear you out. And kvetching or complaining uh, it can do the same thing. It spirals us down a negative path that is strewn with emotional potholes. The Proverbs path is to see reality. And so we need to be constantly on the lookout to ensure that our emotions, our desires to be right or our desires to uh, feel righteous or whatever, don't creep into our viewpoint. And in terms of really sticking with reality, uh, someone or a book I was reading was talking about the classic optimist-pessimist argument. You know, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? You know, it's often said a pessimist sees the glass half empty and an optimist sees the glass half full. I will suggest that the realist sees that the glass is completely full, half with liquid and half with air. That's the fact, okay? As the old dragnet saying goes, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Everything after that is a judgment or an interpretation and all those little judgments and interpretations start us down a very, very slippery slope that goes nowhere helpful and encourages those emotions that can blind us to see what's really going on. Okay, any questions on these ideas? All right, thank you. Um, in that case, we'll, uh, we'll stop for the evening. I see we've just got a couple minutes left and not enough time to get through uh, another verse. So thank you all very much for joining. I really appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas with you. Um, and I will look forward to seeing you or hearing from you next time. Have a good week.